said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it might bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to. He's talking to his disciples. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, in the Father, uh, ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We also love you because of things like this, that you show us who you are and what you're like. Uh, I ask that tonight you, Father, would come and prune, cut away that which hinders, that which holds us back, that which suffocates growth, resting in your love, resting in your peace. Please do that work of pruning and gardening in our hearts tonight. Jesus, you said last week that you sent your Holy Spirit to us to remind us of who you are and all that you said. It's been 14 weeks that we've been looking at you in this book of the Bible. So would you, even tonight, send Holy Spirit to remind us, to paint the mosaic picture of all the different angles we've seen of our Savior, that we might be drawn to you, for the first time, or for the thousandth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Reportedly, on September 11th, the last words of that little group of Americans that were on Flight 93 and rushed up to the cockpit to take the controls away from the terrorists and back under their control the last words that they were reported to have said were, let's roll. Remember that? 
I know you were young, you've heard the stories though, but that became kind of a national rallying cry for everybody in those years after that, let's roll. These people knew that they were running to a certain death. They had gotten a phone call or two on the plane about what had happened in New York. And they, they deduced what was going on in the cockpit that their plane that they were on that morning was a part of this scheme and was either headed to New York to take out another building and thousands of people or DC to take out one of those buildings. Just before the passage that I just read to you, if you have an old-fashioned Bible and you can flip back to John 14, look at the very last words Jesus spoke before he says, I am the vine. The very last words that he said, the, ver the verse right before what I started reading, is Jesus saying, rise, let us go from here. Now where they were was teaching, the kind of stuff we were talking about last week. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, that I'm leaving, but it's going to be okay. After that conversation was over, he says, rise, let's get up and go from here. But originally, the flavor of that phrase that he said had a lot more sense of to your battle stations, or get your game face on, or it's go time, or let's roll. So this is a moment when Jesus has steel in his eyes. And like those people on that plane, he knows every step he takes is one step closer to a certain death. To free us, to free you from these things we've been talking about all year. Cosmic terrorists called darkness and evil and sin and Satan and condemnation and all the hell that they unleashed in our world and in our lives. Jesus has started to rush the cockpit in this account. He has just told his disciples, let's roll. And the next words out of his mouth are, I am the vine and you're the branches. At least what we know now is that Jesus is not pontificating. This is not, uh, we need to get out of our heads any sense of like, you know, the, the breeze blowing the wheat and Jesus is in a pasture or something with his disciples gathered around and he's kind of pontificating on this spiritual metaphor that he's a vine and we're branches. This is a, a dark moment where adrenaline is rushing in everybody. They had just left the temple. Jesus and his disciples, that's who this little band is. That's who the we and the you and the us is in the passage. They just left the temple. And the, the temple was this massive structure. There's not a building on UGA's campus that compares with its size. I mean, the MLC times five. I mean, you're a little kid and you go to the temple like you're looking up. And it's like some of us have been there. It is expansive, especially to an ancient. There was nothing else like it around there. And the temple was built on the highest hill in Jerusalem. They called it a mountain, Mount Zion. Remember that? The holy hill of the Lord? That's where Jesus and his disciples were. And now they're walking down that hill into the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley is a valley that has a lot of famous things in it that you've heard about. The Kidron Valley, which is about a 10-minute walk from the Temple Mount, it's like walking from the arch to here and about that great of hill. Uh, in the Kidron Valley is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will spend this night with tears breaking out of his eyes in blood, the agony that he knew he was going to go through. The Kidron Valley is home to the Mount of Olives, where Judas would kiss Jesus, betray him. He'd be arrested and dragged off to his execution. 
So this little sweet sounding conversation is happening right in between these things and significantly over their right shoulder. So as they're walking down from the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley, right over their right shoulder would have been the biggest building in all the land on the tallest mountain in the city, which means everybody would have been able to see the temple. And on the front of the temple, right over the big pillars where everyone entered in, was a very interesting sculpture. It was a golden, enormous, sprawling vine. Since hundreds of years earlier, way back to the ancient prophets, God was comparing Israel, his people, to his vine. He said throughout every, the Psalms, Jeremiah, Isaiah, other places, he says, you are my vine. This is what he says in Isaiah 5. Let's see if I brought it up here with me. This is Isaiah 5, the first few verses. Isaiah says, the Lord had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, he cleared its stones, and he planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower. This was kind of common practice of the day. He carved out a, a wine press in the nearby rocks. And then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. Remember, he's talking about people, Israel, this community. He waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes there grew bitter. Now you, the people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges. I'll let it be destroyed. I'll break down its walls. I'll let animals, animals trample it. I'll make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned, where the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to not drop rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he found cries of, justice, uh, cries of violence. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. That's the metaphor. That's the image. Every Jew, every Israelite would have known we're the vine of the Lord. And they would have realized at some point this plan, this dream, this calling, this destiny went off the tracks. They weren't producing these sweet, juicy, robust grapes that led to sweet, beautiful wine, but it was bitter and sour and unusable. So Jesus is telling the, his disciples here, you've heard it said that you were the vine, the fruitful one, that God would bless the world through you. The world would taste this sweet wine and be blessed. Life would come, joy would come, healing would come through you, Israel. You've heard that said, but I say to you, I'm the true vine. And that's why he says in our passage, I'm the true vine. He didn't say I'm the vine. He said, I'm the real vine. And remember what's over their shoulder in everybody's view as he's saying this. And what's in front of them is a valley full of grape vineyards and wine presses everywhere. They are surrounded by vineyards and all of them. And maybe Jesus was pointing to that sculpture of that vine when he was talking about these things. So before we go any further, why the geography lesson? Why the historical context? Why looking back into chapter 14? Because we need to see two things at least. It shows us that Jesus is locked into his mission to go and die for you. I know it was 2,000 years ago, I know you're like, how did that account for me? 
But the first thing I wanted you to see with this is that he is locked in, laser-like focus, storming the cockpit already as he's saying these words. The second thing is that Jesus is locked into a mission to go and die that you might be forgiven and fruitful. Not news to you that he was on a mission that you might be forgiven. It might be news to some of you that just as much his mission, why he was going to the cross, was so that you might be fruitful, robustly fruitful. So if you're a Christian, hear me. Jesus died that you might bring blessing and joy and life to the world. This is God doubling down on his plan, which is what God always does. He has no need to create secondary plans. He's God. But the way he pursues plan A is often quite interesting. And the way he's pursuing plan A is Jesus, the true vine, linking you up to him and thereby bearing fruit in you for the sake of the world. I want to spend our last kind of um, chunk of time looking at different pieces of this illustration, this metaphor, this symbolism, and just take it piece by piece. I don't really have points. Let's just look at the image Jesus gave us and not try to re-illustrate it. Uh, At a minimum, we can say this. Jesus is saying, he's the vine, you're the branch, and God the Father is the vine dresser, which means the gardener or the, the, the vineyard operator, the, you know, the pruner. That's kind of how he lays out the metaphor. First, what does it mean that Jesus is the vine? Well, at a a minimum, this obviously means that I'm not the vine. You're not the vine. Jesus is the vine. He's the source of all life, all joy, all spiritual energy, power, growth, maturation. Jesus is the link to life, not you and not me, which means God does not look at you expecting you to be the source of your spiritual life. God does not look at you expecting you to be the one who can sustain your spiritual life. He doesn't have that expectation of you. Isn't that great news? He's not asking you to do that, nor is he asking you to do things only the vine can do. Only the vine can produce fruit, Branches can't produce fruit. The life has to come out of the vine into the branch and produce fruit. Jesus is the one who produces fruit. So he's not asking you to do that either. God does not look at you and see in you the necessary resources to grow, to leave your temptations, to repent, to to live by faith, to wrestle in your mind with those thoughts and turn your face back to Jesus. He doesn't look at you and think that you have in you all the resources in you to do that kind of stuff. He sees you as inadequate in those ways. Instead, he simply says to be the recipient of the vine who is Jesus. He also means that your pastor is not your vine. Your mom or your dad is not your vine. Your best friend is not your vine. The celebrity preacher on YouTube is not your vine. Your idol, comfort, control, certainty, intimacy, relationship, productivity, performance, isn't the vine. It cannot supply you with life, with joy, with energy, with growth. Not at all. It cannot link you up to the divine, to God, to all that he is. Instead of clinging to people who are very helpful, 
who have integral roles in your life but are not the vine, instead of clinging to those people and thinking they are indispensable to my growth, if they graduate, if they leave, I'm done. Instead of clinging to those people, instead of clinging to our idols, God simply calls you to receive the life of the vine as a branch that's in the vine. The next piece of the metaphor, or this imagery, Jesus says, you're the branches, I'm the branch, we're the branches. He's the vine, we're the branch, which means everything that we are, everything that you and I have, was given to us, right? We received it. You know, if you're like the the outer leaves on the branch, everything that leaf receives started in the roots, came up the stalk, through the branch, into the end of it. So it means human beings are utterly dependent creatures by design. Your weakness is not... um, Your weakness is not because of failure. Your weakness is by design. Your dependence is by design. My dependence is by design. Everything that we are is 100% downstream of Jesus, 100% dependent on Jesus. Every inch that you have grown in your life, we owe to Jesus. Every piece of motivation, of energy, of desire to do anything, like love somebody, or get to know the Bible better, or ask your roommate for forgiveness, every single piece of life-giving sap you have ever tasted. Maybe you coming here tonight, having the courage, the faith to do that, is all from the vine. It's all from Jesus, because we're just the branch. And it means that though we do have control and agency in our life, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, it means that ultimately your growth, your progress in the Christian life is, is more dependent on Jesus than you which means it's more his responsibility than yours, which means you can't micromanage this process because you and I are the branch, and he's the vine, which is why J.D. shares stories like he shared with, I didn't know it was going to be whatever that was, sophomore, junior year on a ride with Sarah up to Ridgehaven. I didn't know that's when the vine was going to bring this little piece of life into me and open up the door. He's a branch, He can't micro, as try as we may, we cannot micromanage these things. The vine brings us this life and connects us to these resources in his time. Jesus says in verse 4, the branch can't even bear fruit by itself unless you abide in him. You can't bear fruit apart from abiding in him. He says, apart from me in verse 5, you can do nothing. You and I can't do anything. You and I can't obey apart from him. You and I can't want God apart from him. You and I can't make sense of this very sermon apart from him. You and I can't remember these very words Friday apart from him. You and I can't pant and hunger for God. You and I can't change our hearts apart from him. He's the vine and we're the branch. It also means this, that the vine loves and is vitally connected to the branch. Um, where does, a, where does a, a, a stalk and a branch, where does the stalk stop and the branch begins? Where does the vine stop and the little tendril that comes out of it begin? It's blurry lines. They are one with each other. They're part of each other. They're, they're in each other. I think if you take another, like a parallel metaphor of this, Jesus gives us an agricultural example, but imagine a human example. Imagine a human example vitally connected to another human being, deriving all of his or her life from another human being, being fully dependent. Every 
inch of growth in that little person came from another. And then let's add this element to it. Does the, does the baby in a mother's womb connected to her through her umbilical cord receiving oxygen, blood, antibodies, an immune system, life itself, receiving all that, does the baby have to be aware or fully perceptive of the mother for the baby to still be receiving life and sustenance and protection? No. Is the mother aware of it? Absolutely. I think I've said this to you all before. If you have nieces, nephews, maybe you have an older sibling who's had a child, you're, you're an older sister or something who got pregnant, um, it's, it's fascinating to see when a mother and a baby bond. It's the first, I, I, I think it's the second uh, a woman hears that she's pregnant, because Anna and most of our friends, the second they found out they were pregnant, tears come. And the mom will usually start eating healthier or you know, working out for a little bit or taking vitamins or something. There's an immediate connection of love. This is my child. She or he is part of me, dependent on me, and there's a protectiveness, a mama bear instinct that starts not at the day of birth, but nine months prior when you know this is my child. There's that vital connection. And again, the baby's not aware of any of the love, any of the protection, any of the work that's going on to deliver life to grow and develop and, and mature this baby. But the mom is aware of it all. So it is with Jesus. The vine and his branches united to Jesus as if your soul had an umbilical cord. Sometimes you are perceptive of his love and his care and his protection and his provision and his nourishment. Sometimes you're not. It doesn't mean sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. Lastly, what does it mean that uh, we are branches? It means there's an organic union between you and Jesus, Christian, an organic union between you and Jesus, uh, which means uh, not a mechanical union, which would be this, Jesus is an electrical socket and you're the plug. That's a lifeless illustration. At some point in that illustration, you've got to find a way to get yourself into that. Uh, God's relationship with you is not transactional. You do this and I'll do this. It's not mechanical. It's organic, it's relational, it's vital. And because of all these things, friends, some of the scarier things in this passage, particularly verse two and verse six, that unsettle us when you read it, whether you're a Christian or you're not, because Jesus has an organic, vital, united, personal, relational connection with his people, like a branch to a vine, he says, if you're not linked up to the vine, you have no life in you. He's not talking about biological life. He's saying even that will fade away eventually. But he's talking about the life that you were made for, the life that God himself made you for and pleads for you to come and take part of even now. But he's saying if Jesus is a vine and he is the life source, the source of joy and love, forgiveness and fruitfulness, and you're outside of him, you're not connected to him, not united to him, there's no hope of lasting fruitfulness because of your life. And he's not saying, get out, stay away. He's saying, come, come. Why remain in futility? Why have the day of your death eliminate and extinguish all that you've done in this life? Come and be plugged in. You cannot bear fruit if you're not plugged into Jesus by faith, 
holding on to him. We'll define that in a second. But Jesus is not saying here that he's going to go around and look at Christians and say, do you have enough fruit? Do you have enough fruit? Let's count fruit. Let's come over here. If there's not enough fruit on the branch, the Father's going to come and cut you out, and he's going to throw you in a pile, and he's going to burn you. Jesus has said to his disciples, you are clean, which is what he said when he washed their feet. Not physically clean. You, I have cleansed you. I have forgiven you with my word, not like his, his teachings, with his gospel, with his word of grace, with his word of forgiveness. He's talking to people who are in him, cleansed in him. And I think at some level here, he's talking about Judas-type figures who at this very moment was probably paying the people off as Jesus said these words. And he's saying, there are some people who appear to be in me because they appear, to, like, they appear at RUF, they appear at church, they appear to say, I'm a Christian. But he's saying, what you say doesn't matter. It's who you are and whether or not you're united to Jesus, plugged into Jesus the vine. That's the decisive factor, not what you put on a census form not where you come on a Wednesday night, but are you, are you soaking up the sap of Jesus himself, his love, his care, his word, his power? That's what Jesus is talking about here, not Christians being ripped out of Jesus. Jesus said earlier, the night Trevor preached, I will lose none of those the Father has given to me. All that the, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. It's inconceivable that a living branch in Jesus Christ would wither and be thrown away. He's talking about people who appear to be vital, appear to be alive, appear to be united to Jesus, but don't love him, don't want him, are repelled by the idea of communing with him, want nothing really to do with him. Let's move on. He says the father is the vine dresser, which is not a term we use because we don't live in Napa Valley, California. But a vine dresser is a gardener, it's a pruner, it's somebody who spends their day out in the vineyard, hands on the vines, taking care of the vines. Which this means for us, that there is one who is more committed to your fruitfulness than you and I will ever be. There is one more committed to your growth, your fruitfulness, your repentance, your freedom, you, you catching your stride, you living a full life, you having joy. There's one more committed to that than you and I could ever be, and that's good news. Have you ever run into um, wild fruit or vegetables? If you've ever been like hiking or out in the woods or in the middle of nowhere, you'll see this stuff. Um, one thing that it means that the father is the pruner, the vine dresser, the gardener, means that we have someone taking care of us, pruning us, propagating us, shaping us, forming us. If you've ever been out in the woods and seen wild stuff, like some yards have those little wild strawberries they are about a centimeter big, and there's like one of them on there. You might have seen muscadines, like these really sour, nasty grapes. You might have seen crab apples, which if you've made the mistake of eating one, are disgusting and usually rotten or have bugs and stuff in them. When you go out into the woods and see wild fruit and vegetables that have no vine dresser, no gardener, um, they're usually pretty fruitless, usually lopsided, usually not much to look at, usually rotten. Jesus is saying, that's not you, Christian. You have a farmer who loves you and knows exactly what he's doing and knows what he wants. Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. And he's bringing that about in you. Bringing that about in you. I've been gardening for about five years now. Quarantine was uh, 
quite an accelerator of my, my interest in gardening. So we had a ton of stuff this year. And I didn't ever really know this until I got into it, but um, if you plant a bunch of vegetable seeds, you have your peppers and your tomatoes and all this other kind of stuff, your bean plants, um, there's not much you can grow in a garden and just leave it be. Especially things like tomatoes, you're out there almost every day pulling off all the little suckers, all the little vines that don't have little buds on them that'll never turn into fruit. And the reason you have to do that is the plant doesn't realize it was made for fruitfulness. So the plant left alone just becomes a giant bush with like one or two tomatoes on it that are really malformed. If you've ever been to someone's garden though and you see this like bumper crop on this plant, you have to know somebody was out here every day with his or her hands all over this thing caring for it. And it takes a long time, plant by plant, eyes fixed on every little thing. And you're like, is this gonna bring fruit? Is this gonna bring fruit? Is this gonna sap the energy of the plant? Is this gonna help the plant grow? Is this gonna put roots down? Every move is strategic. That's you. That's the father, the vine dresser working in you. Jesus says you have a farmer, a gardener, a vine dresser, unleashing greater beauty and life in you. And he is eager to grow these fruits in you. So these are the primary characters in his metaphor, the vine, the branch, the vine dresser, and how they all interact together. But I wanna end and get practical and talk about the dynamics involved in all this, the interplay in all these different characters and what it means for us. Abiding and fruit bearing and pruning, what does it all mean? How do we do this? What is abiding in Jesus? What does it mean to abide in me? He says it tons of times. I had a friend from here, Tom Hart is his name, He's the RUF campus minister at Furman now, and um, Tom Hart is not a side hugger. He's a full-on bear hugger. And um, Tom is one of my best friends, so I saw him like six or seven times a week. So it's not like, I haven't seen you in a month. Lock arms and bear hug. Like six or seven times every time you see him. Pass him on campus, come into RUF, gadoom. Like lift you off your feet. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means to receive a hug like Tom's to be caught up in it. There's a passive aspect to abiding. That's one way we can think about abiding, to be picked up and caught up in the love of Jesus. Abiding in Jesus could look like soaking up the sap, the life-giving sap, the nutrients that are coming from the vine, which is also kind of passive, receiving it, soaking it up, taking it in. That's a little bit passive too, but there's also an active, and this is what I really want you to hear, there's an active aspect to abiding in Jesus too. I showed this before with some of y'all. When I was in New Mexico, the ground there is weird. It's like sand or something, because um, it's the desert, and there's a monsoon season. So every August to September, it's the only time of year it ever rains, and it rains every other day, a lot. The soil, something's wrong with it. It doesn't absorb the water. So when it rains, the water rolls right on top of it. That's why there's so many flash floods out in Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. Every time it rains, get out of the dry creek beds because all the water is just going to flow right on top of the ground down there. If you want to actually water your lawn or your plants or whatever else, you have to build these little basins around the bottom of it to catch the water, to pull it up so that the water can sit there for the next few days and penetrate the soil and soak in and get to the roots. What does it look like for you to abide in Jesus? A lot of us friends, me, 
I would imagine some of you live our lives in a way where Wednesday night is a little tiny downpour and Sunday morning might be a, a little or a big downpour, but then it's on to the next thing. And I want to ask you, when's the last time the water of the Lord Jesus Christ's love for you, the peace he's brought you into, his favor on you, his word to you, has penetrated your heart, soaked down to your roots? Or are you more described as that ground in New Mexico where the water just always flows on top? You have an illusion of hearing the word preached, hearing the gospel preached, but it doesn't do anything in you, and so you don't know what's going on in you. I'm doing all the right stuff. I might even be reading my Bible, going to a small group, but it's on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. There's no chance for the water to pool up and sink in. One way it could look like for you to abide in Jesus is for us to figure out what would it look like to build these little cisterns, these little catch pools where a sentence or a phrase or a paragraph or a metaphor, an illustration, a, a quote someone read, a comment someone said in my small group can sit in my heart and the sap, his love, his joy, his word can get in instead of yet another message being forgotten, yet another small group bearing no fruit. That's the active aspect of abiding. Receiving involves work too, doesn't it? It's letting it come to you, letting it soak in. And again, what is that life of Jesus that we let soak in? He says, verse 7, it's his word. He says, verse 10, it's his love. He says, verse 11, it's his joy. He says in verse 10 and verse 12, it's his call to love your neighbor. Those are the things those are the things that are coming off on you. You're receiving them. And the question is, have we allowed space and time and stillness for soaking and watering and nourishing to happen so that it can get into our roots and then animate our lives and bear fruit? It could look like meditating on the Word, your trip to work on the bus when you have 10 minutes every single day with nothing to do. It could look like what I had to do, put a smart plug on my Roku to shut it off at 11 because I would not spend time at night simply reflecting on my day. And so I'm so weak, y'all, I had to put techno technology controls on my internet because I wouldn't do it. It's me trying to build a basin to meditate, to linger, to let it soak and penetrate instead of another busy day, wake up and do it all over again. Eugene Peterson said, the way to meditate on, on Jesus' word, to let it linger in you is the way his dog chews the big steak bone they brought home from the restaurant. He says at first he's wagging his tail, he's all happy, he's bringing it around to everybody in the house, showing off the new bone I got, and then the dog kind of retreats to a corner of the room and then sits there for hours, like sucking on it, gnawing on it, chewing on it, and then he goes and buries it and hides it, and he comes back the next day and he goes back at it and he gets to work on the bone again. And at some point the thing just dissolves, you're like, where did the bone go? And it's like, it became part of the dog. He metabolized it, it's in his bloodstream now. He ingested it. That's, that's meditation. Peterson says, reading is an immense gift, but only if the words are assimilated or taken in. Taken into the soul, eaten, chewed, gnawed, received, in unhurried delight. Prayer two. We mentioned it last week, so I won't go into depth here, but Jesus says, again, two times, ask anything of me, pray to me, pray to me, pray to me. You might be like, but I've been praying about this forever. 
It's more about the one that you're communing with than the thing you're asking for. That's why God is always calling you to pray. Cast your anxieties upon me. Cry out to me. Even if you're, you have a dull heart, even if you don't know how to pray, talk, talk, talk. That's why nutrients are exchanged between the branch and the vine. We talked about abiding and what it might look like to abide both passively, receptively, but also actively participating in that process. What does fruitfulness look like? What is this fruitfulness he's talking about? You being a better you, you being more ambitious, you getting the job you ever wanted, you earning more money. What's the fruitfulness he's talking about? The very life of Jesus being formed and released in you. That's the fruitfulness he's talking about. The fruit of the spirit of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You being in the driver's seat of your thoughts again. You being in the driver's seat of your, your desires again. Kindness to your political enemies. Charity to those you think you disagree with but need to hear out a little bit more. Joy, not American happiness that lasts until the next episode queues up, but joy that can survive anything. And hope and peace. Don't you want peace on your insides? That's the life of Jesus. Jesus said, I've told you these things that you may have my joy and that your joy might be full and complete. That's the fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of Jesus' character happening inside of you, in you. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is mankind fully alive. God's delight, his joy is you coming fully alive in Jesus. What does it mean, this fruitfulness that he's talking about? He will form in you as you abide in him. It's a blessing to the world. Remember the original metaphor of Israel being the vine? It was for the sake of the world, that the world might taste the wine and say, who made this? It's for the sake of the community, for the sake of your friend group, to see Jesus in you and to say, who is that? And to give him a second thought. What are the obstacles of abiding? We've already talked about some of it. Hurry busyness. I think other than cynicism, I'd say it's the greatest spiritual danger in Athens, Georgia for all of us. One of the most spiritually fatal threats you'll face as a student at UGA is how busy you are, how hurried we always are on to the next thing. Another one is how our minds are preoccupied and filled with other things, and so there's no room for Jesus's word, his simple word, of who you are to him, of a kind word to you. Uh, simply space for you to start saying no to the inner dialogue and yes to his, his voice or his word. Our minds are preoccupied with other things. John Mark Comer is a guy who went through a deep, dark season of anxiety and depression a long time ago. He started to write a lot of books about it now. This is what he said about his experience. In retrospect, as he offers advice to his friends, he says, every thought in your minds has to be filtered. If you're going to survive this war of anxiety, depression, forgetfulness, you need to be a domineering, controlling, micromanaging tyrant when it comes to your thought life. Any and all thoughts outside of Jesus' word to you, you take it captive, you shut it up, and you evict it. You give those thoughts no time, no mental real estate, no free pass. You throw those thoughts into prison. No better yet, you send them straight to solitary confinement. And when you're done, you throw away the keys. Why? So that you can hear so that there's space for the sap of the vine to 
come in. Friends, some of us are exactly where we were six months ago or two years ago because there's not room in your head right now to hear anything I'm saying, anything Jesus is saying. We are so preoccupied on the lost internship, the major you didn't get into, the breakup and how it went. And we're, we're stalled because the sap isn't getting to us. John Mark Comer gives us a way out. This is where I want to end because I bet a lot of us feel stuck and stalled, right? I bet a lot of you are thinking, I want to abide in Jesus better, but I try and it doesn't go anywhere. I want to be fruitful for my sake, for the world's sake, for the glory of the Father's sake. I want to be fruitful. Here's the best news in this passage. Pruning. You're not alone. God notices the relative lack of fruit. It says any branch that is in his son Jesus, he will prune. Why? Because it's fruitless? No, because he wants there to be more. That's why he draws near with his pruning shears. That's why we experience as Christians these little losses, these little deprivations, thing we think, things we think we need that he's taken, not to hurt you, but to unleash energy in you, to let the sap flow, to let you soak him up, to let you be fruitful. That's why the Father prunes us. He does it through his word. He does it through hard life circumstances. But he's a hands-on savior, and when you're being pruned, it means he is near, and his hands are on some of the most sensitive, needy places in your life. Friends, we've been through a lot this semester, 14 weeks of this stuff, talking about Jesus every single week. If you don't know him, he is alive, and he has ears. And you can say, I'm a branch on the ground, dead, because I have no life. I've fallen from the tree. Plug me into you. And you listen to him. And you take him seriously when he says, come to me and I will give you rest and I'll give you life. And if you know him, friends, let's find ways to help each other create little pools to catch the water, to let it soak, to let it linger, to slow us down, to bring us fruit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. You say in this passage, greater love is no one, th no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That is what you did just a day after you said these words. You gave away your life that we might have life, that we might be grafted into you, the vine. So I pray that you will come in power and feed us and nourish us. That would we know your love, would you clear the space in our heads by your power that we might hear your voice again. We pray this in your name.